today I'm going to talk about the, uh, the Noble Quest, which is the title of a, a sutta, a discourse in the, in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length uh, teachings of the Buddha. Uh, I think it's number 26. But before we do that, I'd like to go back to the image we explored yesterday of the uh, man in the forest stumbling across an old trail, following it, coming to the ruins of an old city, going back home, getting mobilizing the population and rebuilding this, um, this old city. This is an image, of course, also of uh, something that has been lost. And if we were to interpret it in a more psychological way, we can think of it perhaps as a way of talking about how we also, in our lives, uh, lose touch with, let's say, the sources of our inspiration. How, let's say, a practice of, of meditation often begins as something very um, alive, a very vital for us. And yet over the course of time, it risks uh, becoming uh, routinized, which means becoming just another kind of routine or, or habit. And the practice can easily sort of flatten out. And this process, I think, is almost um, unavoidable, perhaps, at some level. Um, as we become used to something, um, it assumes a sort of normalcy, normality, very often we find that we continue doing it perhaps because we feel an obligation to do so, perhaps because we have joined some church or some community in which this kind of behavior is required of us. Perhaps it just becomes something that is um, broadly comfortable for us to do. And yet we have this kind of uncomfortable uh, sense that we've lost touch with something. And so in some ways I think we can see this parable as um, a story about how we constantly, in the course of our practice, um, need at times to recover or to rediscover um, what it was that brought us to this interest or this commitment or this way of life in the first place. And I think, once again, this is another way of, of looking at this tension between Buddha and Mara, between the, the quality of being fully alive, fully awake, and how 
despite our best intentions, that can so easily begin to get kind of stuck, habitual, routine, and rather flat. So I think it's useful to, to, to look at this parable not just in terms of a kind of one-off experience, either historical or in terms of our own lives, but as really talking about a process that continuously perhaps calls for renewal, calls for re-inspiration. And this is perhaps why there's so much emphasis given to the notion of path, in this case the Eightfold Path. But path, I think, is perhaps more of a central notion um, than any idea we might have of a goal. And as we mentioned already, this eightfold path in the story leads to the four truths, the fourth of which is the eightfold path, which leads to the four truths, to conditioned arising, and so on. And therefore, the the parable itself is a description of a process rather than a description of a path that leads to a goal. Because the goal is also the path which leads on. And I find this a very powerful um, metaphor uh, for my own process, my own life, in the what I think really um, matters is not so much getting to some state of enlightenment, whatever that might be, but rather um, living in each moment in a way in which we feel that we are um, optimizing uh, the energies, the capacities, the potentials that we have to, to live um, what may just be a few more years, we don't know, or weeks, or days, or minutes, but to do so somehow totally and fully. So for me, the, the, the Buddhist path um, is very much um, about uh, trying to sort of keep alive um, a, a living, ongoing engagement with whatever is occurring at any given moment. It's not about becoming a specialist or proficient in certain areas of of spiritual expertise. That's a part of it, perhaps. But I think by getting too locked into, say, uh, meditation, we might lose sight of the bigger picture. And I think this is also implied um, in the parable itself. Um, What is it that leads to this city? It's a path. And what is this path? It is, in Buddhist jargon, uh, the Eightfold Path. Now that implies that um, the whole of our life is engaged in this journey to this city, not just one bit of ourselves. The Eightfold Path, as we'll see as we continue this week, involves the whole of our humanity, 
from the way we, we see things and think about them and speak and act and work, all of that is involved. Now, if we, um, if we then think of this parable as perhaps in some ways referring to the Buddha's own past, how he got to where he was, it rather explodes the idea that is the traditional uh, narrative or story that the Buddha got to be enlightened because he was terribly good at meditation. And if you look at the text we're going to be looking at, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the Discourse on the Noble Quest, that's the message you get. The Buddha leaves home, becomes a wandering ascetic. And again, we often translate this in terms of our religious language, a monk or a mendicant, an alms seeker or something. Then he trains with two teachers, um, Alara Kalama and Uddhakaramaputta, who teach him basically highly evolved skills in um, trance-like meditation. He becomes an expert in remaining focused on the base of nothingness and then on the base of neither perception nor non-perception. But although he masters these practices, he finds they don't actually resolve his primary uh, uh, questions. He then supposedly embarks on a process of uh, extreme asceticism, of starving himself and doing all kinds of um, rather self-punishing activities. That doesn't work either, and so he then goes and sits beneath a tree. Again, we have the idea of sitting in meditation. And finally, um, overnight almost, becomes a Buddha. Now, I just don't find that story credible. Um, it, it's... <clears throat> It doesn't really um, account in any kind of uh, credible way um, for the sort of uh, understanding he then demonstrates in his teaching, which is far more refined, parodic, ironic, um, complex, philosophical, psychological, not something that I believe, would just sort of suddenly pop up in his mind through doing the right kind of meditation. I don't want to suggest that meditation doesn't have an important role in this. It does. But the danger, I feel, is that by privileging meditation, we lose sight of the fact that such practices have their meaning within a way of life that includes how we think and how we speak and how we act, and how we work. And so we have in this parable, um, and let's assume that this is the Buddha's way of talking about himself, which is what he says, in fact, is I, I am like that man who goes into the forest. What it seems to suggest is that prior to the Buddha's awakening, um, we have a, a sense of a person um, who cultivates a way of life in all aspects 
of his existence in terms of how he's thinking and speaking and acting and so on. And at some point, that way of life begins to crystallize into an understanding in which he gains a vision, let's say, or a a sense of himself and the world uh, that has a kind of coherence to it. And that coherent sense of the person in the world becomes the basis for his teaching. Um, It's certainly the case that in most schools of Buddhism, um, this process is described very much in terms of achieving some sort of um, inner state of uh, of, of understanding or insight, often of a somewhat transcendent nature, that thereby of, uh, gives the uh, the Buddha this kind of privileged um, uh, state of mind. I think that's too narrow. And instead, I feel it makes an awful lot more sense that his arrival at an awakening is more of a process rather than a stumbling about in the dark and then suddenly having some massive illumination of a kind of mystical nature. Now this brings us to um, the text I want to look at uh, today, which is called, as I already said, The, uh, the Noble Quest, And again, I think it's striking that uh, we come once again to this idea of a, of a journey, of a quest in this case. It's a very, um, I think it's a very important text and I've recently been reading um, a rather dense academic study of it that confirms my own intuition that this is perhaps the earliest account or reliable account of what we call uh, the Buddha's awakening. So I'm going to only focus on one particular passage, which I'll be reading out. But uh, what the Buddha describes in this discourse um, is his leaving home, and then his studying with the two teachers that I mentioned, It doesn't actually talk about doing ascetic practices at all, um, which is curious. Maybe that, again, was a later elaboration. We don't really know. But all he mentions in this text is that he, he studies with these two teachers, doesn't find what they teach is adequate or uh, sufficient to answer his deepest questions, and then it goes without transition, without mentioning sitting under a tree or, or anything like that or going to Bodhgaya. None of that is mentioned. We just suddenly find ourselves um, hearing the Buddha's account of his own awakening. And this is the text. It's just one paragraph. So the Buddha speaking, he says, I, this is what I considered. This Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise, 
But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground. This conditionality. Conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground. The stilling of all inclinations, the fading away of craving, stopping, Nibbana. Were I to teach the Dhamma and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. I think there's an awful lot packed into this fairly brief text. Uh, and I take it to be uh, the, the, the most authoritative account that we have of what constitutes uh, the Buddha's awakening. Now, uh, again, with a lot of these uh, sort of classical texts, it's useful sometimes to, to, to notice what is not being said. Because I suspect most of us have some idea when we use this word enlightenment, for example, or awakening, uh, we have some sort of uh, perhaps unstated or implicit understanding of what that means. I mean, how many times have you been in a conversation or heard people talking when they're speculating, say, on whether, you know, is the Dalai Lama enlightened? Or is teacher X enlightened? Was Ramana Maharshi enlightened? And people will often say quite, you know, quite sincerely, you know, the enlightened masters of the past. And they'll enlist them, you know, Chuang Tzu, Lao Tzu, um, the Buddha, Mahavira, Jesus, Socrates, the lot. They're all enlightened. Um, I don't find that sort of uh, language really very helpful. Because it begs an enormous question. Um, enlightened about what? Enlightened about what? Sometimes there's this kind of assumption that enlightenment is a kind of a quality that some lucky people manage to get and most of us don't. And it's some sort of, sort of inner state of mind almost invariably of a somewhat mystical nature, usually an enlightenment about some higher truth. Uh, if it's a theistic tradition, this higher truth will be called God or the absolute or the ultimate um, or the nature of reality. Uh, I find all this language really not very uh, coherent, really. Uh, I, I sympathize with the, 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 the universalism and the tolerance and the open-mindedness that perhaps underpins it, but I don't know whether it'll take us very far, uh, particularly in terms of actually trying to understand, in the case of a particular person, let's say the Buddha, you know, what was his experience actually like? And was it the same as Rumi and uh, other teachers of different traditions, very difficult to say. 
So rather than um, use the word in a sort of undefined, generic way, I find it more useful to go back to some primary texts that are hopefully reliable. And again, we can never know for sure. Um, And to try to unpack them. So what we find in this passage here, um, or let's say what we don't find in this passage here, um, is the word truth, for example, just not there. Although unfortunately in in uh, the translation you'll get from Bhikkhu Bodhi and Bhikkhu Nyanamoli, they do use the word truth, but actually it's not there. They say um, uh, it's hard for people to see this truth, not this ground. And I, for many years, assumed that the word they were translating was satya or satya, truth. When I checked it with the Pali, when my Pali was good enough, I realized it wasn't there at all. So you can't even trust translations. That's a problem too. Even good translations. A translation is always an interpretation, as the cliche goes. So unfortunately, um, to, to go back to some of these sources, we have to learn these rather weird, old and difficult languages. So there's no word for truth. Um, there's also... No term in this passage that um, is rooted in the word nya in Pali or Sanskrit, which means to know. There's no, no sense that in, in this process the Buddha came to know something, to understand something. That's not mentioned. He sees something. And what he sees... Um, is what he calls a tannang. A tannang um, does quite literally mean ground. And it's the same word, in fact, as we find in, in the term satipatthana, which means the, uh, usually translated as the foundations of mindfulness. Satipatthanang. Tanang is the same word, translated as foundation, but again, that's slightly incorrect. It's not a noun in the Pali, it's a verb. So it means something like the grounding of attention, not the ground of attention, the grounding or the the establishing it's sometimes translated as. And that's the same word as what the Buddha uses here when he says it's difficult to see this ground. Now, the other word that he uses um, in in, in contrast to the term tanang is the word alaya, which I'm translating as place, but it could also be translated as ground, actually although we're probably unaware of it, uh, we use, we're we're almost certainly familiar with this word in another context. And that is when we talk about those mountains in the north of India. What are they called? What are they called? (laughs) Himalaya. Himalayas. 
Him, it means snow. And alea, it's the same word as here, it means the basis or the place or the, the ground of the snow. So what's going on here is what strikes me as being a word play that uh, the Buddha's describing his awakening not in terms of gaining some privileged knowledge of a higher truth. That's completely absent. But rather, he's speaking about a radical shift in his perspective. Basically, a shift from a place, an alaya, to a tanang, a ground. Now, this, I think, is entirely um, in keeping with the whole idea of the pursuit of a quest. You go from one place to another. Much in the same way as we have in our parable, starting in the forest, following the trail, getting to a city. It's all about the process of going from one condition to another, one state to another, one condition, one understanding to another. And again, if we look at the structure of the, of the text uh, in the larger sense, it too is the description of a, of a journey. Leaving home, going and studying, doing these meditations, and then getting to this ground. So we're describing really a movement. We're not describing arriving at a state So what is then the distinction between uh, an alaya, or a place, and a tanang, or a ground? I think another way in which the, the early tradition speaks of this is in the metaphor of uh, leaving home for homelessness. Uh, again, a very, very classical Um, phrase leaving home for homelessness now normally in most Buddhist traditions this has become a uh, way of speaking about becoming a monk or a nun you quite literally leave your domestic life and all of the chores and hassles included therein and you then embark on a career as a monk or a nun. Um, And in the Buddha's time, this was a state of homelessness. Uh, Nowadays, it's often, I don't want to be too impolite, but it's basically moving into another kind of home. In other words, a nice comfortable monastery somewhere. The Buddha didn't want to set up monasteries. Perhaps through the inertia of the human condition, that's kind of what ended up happening. But initially, that wasn't the idea at all. Uh, the idea was really to take the, uh, the risk of leaving behind your securities, your place, and, as he says somewhere else in a very beautiful uh, uh, text, uh, going forth um, into the open road. He says, a, he says a, a life at home is covered with dust. 
but a life gone forth is open wide. Now again, I think we can understand that both literally as living a life in which you are without a fixed home, sans domicile fixe. How do you say that in English? Uh, No fixed abode. Um, But we can also take it, and I think this is probably the the, the more useful way of interpreting this, is being prepared to live a life in which you're not defining yourself and redefining yourself in terms of, well, this is who I am. It touches, I think, very much into questions of identity. And as creatures who are thrown into this bewildering world at birth, um, with the only certain prospect of being ejected from it at some point later at death, and having to cope with all of the uncertainties and the struggles and the suffering and the sickness and the aging and all of that stuff, it's not surprising that we seek some sort of security and permanence and fixity within this world of flux, change and unpredictability. And what we'll find as we go through the through the rest of this week, is what the Buddha is trying to get people to to see uh, and to embrace is this condition of anicca dukkha anatta. To embrace change, to embrace dukkha, and to embrace the fact that there is no kind of fixed self-identity in any of this. In other words, to let go of those strategies that almost instinctively uh, uh, seek to kind of secure ourselves and hold ourselves in a safe place. And so the whole structure of uh, of the ego, in a way, is built around uh, achieving some uh, conviction in the security of one's place. Now this can range from a number of things. It can range from the identity we have, let's say, of belonging to a particular nation or a particular city or town, whatever it might be. It also, of course, includes our sense of our social position, you know, where we stand in the hierarchy of the social worlds that we are involved in. You know, who do I look up to? Who do I expect to look up to me? What's my position here? You know, when we go into a room full of, 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 of people that we may not know so well, like coming onto the retreat here, you know, how automatically do we start sizing people up in terms of where we stand, where we somehow fit in? But if we go, let's say, more into our inner processes, 
uh, we find that this, uh, this, this yearning for a kind of place might be um, accomplished by adopting a certain set of beliefs or views. You know, we, we, we join a political party or we join a religion. And that gives us a sense of place. You know, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a member of the Labour Party. Whatever it might be. That in so many ways, um, we find that we um, uh, keep getting drawn into this game of, um, of, 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 of establishing ourselves in a particular place. And we get very worried about it if it gets threatened. We get very unstable if we feel that we're going to lose our job or, or, or something secure is going to be taken from us. So what the Buddha's talking about here, I feel, um, is that we fail in a sense to um, live fully because we're constantly holding on and in a sense, shutting ourselves down around a set of identities of me being this way, me being that way. And again, not surprisingly, uh, this is exactly how we understand this term Mara. Uh, another synonym for Mara is Antaka in Pali, which means... Uh, the one who imposes limits. Anta means like dead ends, limits. Um, th- th- there is, I think, an almost um, uh, instinctive um, tendency uh, to limit ourselves, to, to enclose ourselves within a fixed or relatively fixed definition. And the danger, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of this talk, is that even if we embark on a process that's very liberating, in which we let go of a lot of this stuff, and we experience that sort of, that flow of life, that too can quite easily, over time, um, get crystallized and stuck in another sense of identity. And this is why I feel that this process we're involved in, the path leading to a city that also includes the path, the the practice is very much about constantly being on watch or on guard against this uh, recursive or this recurrent uh, uh, resort to uh, fixity. So if we look back at the the actual text itself, the Buddha says, but people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. But it is hard for people who love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground. So in terms of the quest that the Buddha is describing, The problem with holding on to this kind of fixed identity 
is that it actually serves as a kind of a, a blindfold. It actually, uh, in a sense, prevents us from seeing something else which, for the Buddha, is more liberating, namely this ground, as he describes it. And I think, again, we probably can relate to this. There is something that is quite satisfying about having a position, being respected, having a set of convictions and and certainties about certain things. That does give us a sense of security. There's no question about that. But the price we often pay is to lose touch with the... Um, the let's say the dynamic flow of our life and that over time we begin to perhaps feel somewhat alienated uh, by the very thing that we thought was going to give us uh, security and satisfaction and there's too many stories we find this in novels we find this in in, in theatre, we find this in the myths of the religions everywhere. Uh, this uh, capacity we have to cut ourselves off from the wellsprings of life itself. So when the Buddha comes to describe Idam Tanang, this ground, we find something rather paradoxical. Because, of course, a ground is considered to be something very secure and very firm. That's what grounds are about. But when he describes it, it doesn't sound like anything secure at all. He describes it as ida pachayata paticca samuppada. Now, in Pali, that's just one long string of letters. And we can cut it up in different ways. But Ida Pachayata, and as far as I'm aware, this is the only, the only time in the canon that this phrase occurs. It literally means conditioned by this, Ida. Ida, or Idang, um, is what's called a deictic pronoun. It's, it's this, that, these, those. And when we use those words, those deictic means pointing, literally. Uh, this clock, that bell. And I don't think this is being used accidentally. And it's interesting that the word ida appears also in idang tanang, this ground, ida pachayata, this conditionality, conditioned by this. The Buddha is referring to the specific experiences and details of our everyday lives, I feel, when he's talking here. In other words, he's bringing us away from this conviction in some kind of relatively abstract security of having a place and turning our attention back to the specifics of life itself. And this, of course, I think is very much uh, reflected in the whole practice of mindfulness, where we start with the breath. We pay attention to the sensations in the body. 
We listen to the sounds around us. We pay more attention to the tasting of the food we eat and and the drink we drink. We even pay attention, as he says in one very famous passage, to our shitting and our pissing. That must have been quite shocking for, you know, let's say the Brahmin priesthood of his day. Here's a teacher who says you should meditate on your, on your, on the evacuation of your bowels. I think all of this is connected. Satipatthanam, the grounding of mindfulness, is the grounding of attention in the specifics of our existence, and making very deliberate and repeated um, uh, attempts to be more attentive to the leaves and the trees and the blades of grass and the little bunny rabbits jumping around the garden and turning our attention to that, to things that are in process, that are impermanent, that are uh, constantly coming and going, arising and passing away, rather than seeking some sort of Um, ultimate security in, let's say, God or the unconditioned or the deathless or the Atman or whatever it might be. And this is where I feel the Buddha's teaching is quite a radical break from um, much of what constitutes mainstream religions of all traditions, including Buddhism. Now, again, the word tanang, ground, um, refers, I think, also to um, what, at the Buddha's time, would have been considered to be God. Um, in, in, the, in the Upanishads, uh, sometimes Brahman is called the Adishtana, in Sanskrit, which again means the foundation or the ground of everything, the ground of being. So what the Buddha seems to be doing here, I would suggest, is he's giving a radically new spin to a term that would have referred to something absolute or ultimate or um, you know, really real and true, namely God, and saying, well, the real ground, or the ground that, that I find liberating, is not that abstract, uh, theistic idea, but rather the actual unfolding of life as we experience it through the senses, uh, through our own feelings, uh, through our thoughts, And so, again, his practice of meditation goes in quite the opposite direction to what would have been normative at his time. And if you read some of the Upanishads, uh, you'll get the impression that yoga or tapas is very much about turning the attention inwards, uh, seeking to uncover and experience your true self, which is identical to the um, 
the greater self of Brahman, or God. It's very much an introspective process, aiming at uncovering something that is beyond the uh, reach of sensory experience. It's sometimes called Turiya, the fourth state, which is not that of the senses, nor that of the mind, uh, nor even that sort of residual consciousness in deep sleep. It's beyond all of that. It's where you touch into the ultimate consciousness, the ultimate, pristine, pure awareness of God. And what the Buddha seems to be doing is the complete opposite. The turning of our attention to this experience here and now, which he describes as paticca sam upada, um, which I've already mentioned. Literally, paticca sam upada means, upada means arising, and paticca means um, conditions. Paticca causes, conditions, circumstances that give rise to other things. One of the classic uh, uh, descriptions of this um, is found uh, in another Majjhima Nikaya text, 79, where the Buddha is talking to a man called Udayin, who's a Jain, a follower of Mahavira. And he says, let be the past, Udayin, let be the future. I will teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. So once again, you can see very clearly the repeated use of the deictic pronoun, this that, this, that. When this arises, that comes to be. Now, again, this is very simple in a way, and it looks really like a description of causality, which I think in a deep sense it is. But it's the recognition very much of uh, the process of life itself. Paticca Samupada, before we get into the 12 links and all of these rather complicated Buddhist doctrines, the principle is uh, the principle of what we might in modern English call a contingency. A contingency means for one thing, for everything to be contingent upon something else. Uh, nothing exists sui generis in and of itself. Nothing has, as the, some Buddhist philosophies say, inherent existence. We don't have inherent existence the birds and the trees don't have inherent existence. And that means that these things do not exist in isolation as real essences and things that somehow are there by their own weight, their own reality. They're only there because of the myriad circumstances and conditions that have given rise to their coming into being. Now I think one of the most effective ways in which this vision is uh, communicated is not actually through Buddhist 
texts, which tend to be rather abstract, but actually through, um, let's say, the, the understanding we have of natural evolution, the understanding we have of the, uh, the, the interdependence of the natural world that we find in biology. I think the natural sciences have opened up uh, our understanding of the natural world um, in, a very, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a very concrete way. For example, the carbon cycle, uh, the way in which the uh, photosynthesis works, uh, the way in which um, different forms of, uh, of life are somehow mutually supportive, like flowers and bees, for example. Uh, how everything is somehow contingent for its existence upon everything else. And we find this uh, in, philosophically explained in uh, doctrines like systems theory, for example, um, which I feel illustrates this point far more uh, vividly and powerfully than these uh, classical Buddhist texts. But this, I think, is really what the Buddha is talking about, um, is to um, come into or a return to um, this sense of the world and this sense of ourselves as an integral part of this world as deeply processual and contingent. And so again, if we go back to our parable, this eightfold path in the forest leads to this ruined city. And what is the ruined city? It is Paticca Samuppada. Uh, it is this conditioned arising. Now, sometimes it's translated as conditioned co-arising. In other words, things coming about together. But, as we'll see tomorrow or the next day, that this is also refracted to through the, what are called the Four Noble Truths. In other words, the Buddha is not only interested in experiencing life as profoundly contingent, interconnected, interrelated, uh, processual, but is also perhaps primarily concerned with, well, so what? You know, what does, how does that help me to live in this world? What are the implications of such a vision of life in terms of, of my own process as a, as a human being? And by implication, the lives of other human beings and other creatures, other forms of life of which we are in, you know, interdependent in some deep way. And so the second part of this passage um, shifts from, his, uh, from what he has seen in terms of this conditionality, conditioned arising. And then he talks of another ground. It's also hard to see this ground. The stilling of inclinations the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana or nirvana. So it's not just about his suggesting, well, this, 
is the nature of our world. It's all interdependent and interconnected. But equally, in order that that comes to, to mean something for us, in order that we can enter into a relationship with that, we need to let go of precisely those habits of mind which are traditionally greed, hatred, confusion, which is summarized under this term craving. We're going to come back to that. It's only when those kinds of inclinations and habits and patterns begin to fall away that we can experience this conditioned arising um, in a way that will really touch us. It won't just be an idea or a theory, but actually it becomes a lived experience. And that's what really the practice of mindfulness, the practice of attention, is in some ways all about. And that's why in these retreats, in these study retreats, um, I think it's so important that we don't just explore these ideas, but we also seek to uh, cultivate uh, a frame of mind, uh, a quality of awareness and sensitivity and attention in which we can begin to get a felt sense of what this is, the, uh, this, this is all about. See, so the experience of Nibbana, which again is often thought of as some kind of you know, mystical state, uh, some transcendent experience of something unconditioned, is actually just a way of talking about the, the falling away of our attachment to place. And so as we practice uh, paying attention, we, we start, it might be a bit boring at times, I know, you know, 40 minutes again on the breath, the sensations in the body. But the problem is that we're so programmed not to do that. We're so conditioned to uh, focus our attention primarily on our separateness. Again, look at what goes on in your wandering thoughts. A lot of it is basically an ongoing commentary on me and what I want and what I don't want, which is fair enough. I mean, that's presumably you know, how we came to be here in the first place by you know, the power of these desires and dislikes and so on. They have some evolutionary purpose. But they've kind of gone by their sell-by date. And rather than help us survive, they actually cut us off uh, from the very life of which we are a part. They alienate us. They, 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 they separate us. So the practice of attention is on the one hand paying attention to impermanence, dukkha, which we'll look at later, anatta, you know, the, the impersonal nature of the process of life itself. But to do so uh, from a frame of mind in which we're less and less conditioned by our attractions, aversions, fears, self-centeredness. So it's these two things together. 
that, that lead us to hopefully a state of greater stillness, uh, of a, a more grounded awareness based in our bodies, in our senses, uh, in our thoughts, so that we get to moments in this practice where we're not just being pushed and pulled by what we want and what we don't want, but rather we're able to settle into um, a much more vivid and immediate uh, experience, basically, of life itself. And if I were to find a single English word that would correspond to this rather technical word, paticca samuppada, and conditioned arising is unfortunately just Buddhist jargon. If you go into the streets of Newton Abbott and collar somebody and say, you heard about conditioned arising? <laughs> Wouldn't work. So I'm sorry, what, mate? <laughs> no, I don't know, I don't know him. <laughs> the, 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 um, the word in English basically is life. Paticca samuppada means life. And so what the Buddha has seen is life. But he's seen it from a perspective that is not determined or conditioned by attachment, fear, greed, egoism, pride. And that's, in a sense, the Buddha's city, if we take it metaphorically. But we're going to stop here today. And um, we'll continue tomorrow in much the same vein. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.